Two and a Half Admins, Episode 4. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Jim. And here we are again. And we're going to do a couple of news stories and then one of your questions. So let's start with Zoom. Now, after May the 30th, which is coming up very quickly, users are going to be essentially forced to upgrade to the new 5.0 version if they want to take part in calls. This comes after quite a lot of scrutiny of their security practices. And this is them kind of saying that, oh, we've got all the encryption sorted now. But I get the feeling that you two might be a bit skeptical of that. Um, So, yeah, what they're deploying here is AES GCM encryption, which is probably the right one to be using. And I understand why you need to upgrade the client for that. It seemed like a little short notice for the forced upgrade. Honestly, I I find it kind of hard to care too much about it. Um, Encryption is great, but, you know, this is video data, not raw text. It's harder to mine A and B and more importantly, you know, if you're doing your super duper secret squirrel stuff, you really shouldn't be doing it, you know, just over a generic third party cloud infrastructure. Yeah. You should be doing your own self-hosted stuff and knowing for a fact that it's all encrypted and doesn't go anywhere that it shouldn't. Yeah. Like, I don't know what's anybody's has in a Zoom meeting that's so important or secret. Like, I know people are doing like therapy sessions and so on via Zoom. And so, yes, it's important to actually make sure random people can't bomb the meeting and jump in there naked and so on. But that has nothing to do with encryption. Exactly. That was just having the passwords on by default and so on. Even when you have it encrypted, if the keys are all controlled by Zoom, if Zoom wants to watch your meeting, they're going to anyway. And again, to Jim's point, if it's something secret enough that you want to be paranoid about it, you need to control all the infrastructure yourself and know exactly where the keys are. And Zoom's whole point is that it's easy and you don't have to know where the keys are. And, you, you know, you're not attesting to the identity of the other people that are joining the meeting because, you know, you're not using PKI or something. So, yeah, I think it's mostly a marketing exercise because to say, you know, we have full encryption or whatever. And it's like, OK, sure. The upgrade was painless for me and, and I did it and I've had many Zoom calls every day and it's been fine. So, well, so have the UK government. So much for important stuff not being on Zoom, eh? Most government meetings should be public anyway. True, but this is not government public meetings. This is private stuff between our prime minister and his aides and whatever. Yeah, and then there's a whole argument whether, you know, if the government ran their own infrastructure for this and ran their own encryption for it, would they likely do a worse job than, you know, a company like Zoom or Google or somebody that has a team of people that actually maybe caring about nation state level attacks or whatever. So Alan, I think what you're saying here is, but her Zoom calls. No, it's more, it goes <laughs> to the James Micken thing. It's like, you can take certain levels of paranoia, but at a certain point you have to realize that if you're being massaged upon, there's nothing you can do. Unless it's like, you know, magic fairy dust and go live in a submarine. Those are your only options to avoid being massaged upon. So you have to decide what threats are realistic and which ones there's just not something you're going to be able to do about it. Well, to be fair, if you're a nation state, there are absolutely things you can do about it. And our nation states have been doing those things for truly secret information. I mean, you know, we have secure rooms and secure channels and you have to be in the place with it all locked up and it's a pain in the ass. So politicians don't want to use them. Right. But, you know, then that just comes down again to if they're just doing a casual call, you know, from their working office or whatever, then that shouldn't be a call with super secret, you know, stuff that can't be leaked because that's not a secure channel. That's not a secure call. It's not secure equipment. It's not a secure room. It is exactly. It's like uh, if you want to compromise the Zoom calls of 
lowly ministers in the, in the UK government, it's probably a lot easier to walk into their office and and drop a phone under the desk or something like even super low tech bugging and so on than it is to compromise Zoom or or break the AES encryption or whatever. But the point is that none of them are in their offices right now. They're all at home. Sure. So it probably would be easier to try and uh, break this encryption than... Well, no, it'd be easier to send them an email with an attachment and watch them open it and then compromise their computer and record and stream the whole thing outside of Zoom. Come on, uh, Alan, you know, the, the success rate in phishing campaigns is only like 30%. Yeah, is if you get GitLab. <laughs> Ouch. But uh, I think the second part of the story is the one that I found most confusing, or the timing of the two, I think. The buying of Keybase back in the, the beginning of May. Yeah, so they bought Keybase claiming it was because they needed the, the encryption expertise and so on. And yet before they really have time to close the transaction, it's like, by the end of May 30th, every Zoom meeting will be encrypted. And it's like, then what did you need the Keybase expertise for? Maybe they just worked really quickly. I, I don't <laughs> think so. Like, I don't think the deal's even actually finished yet. I don't know if anybody at Keybase was even involved. Like, it seems to me that the, the engineering effort to make Zoom calls encrypted was a many-month project, probably. And I would imagine started before the COVID stuff and was just maybe all hands on deck after that point or something. But So do you think that buying Keybase was just a publicity stunt then? Not necessarily. I just it, The timing of, all right, we have encryption now, seemed to not really mesh with the message of, we're buying Keybase to get their real crypto expertise. Because the other thing is like Keybase didn't roll their own crypto because you shouldn't do that. Keybase is basically a nice web UI trying to make GPG, the old GNU thing, more usable and, and fit into kind of what we, how people interact nowadays and, and, you know, prove that that Twitter account and that GitHub account are the same person in a, a legitimate way and that you can send messages and so on. But then Keybase also got into weird stuff, like they had a cryptocurrency of their own called Space Droplets or something like that. And I'm like, Zoom, you're trying to be this, you know, big enterprise uses us and stuff. It's like, do you really want a cryptocurrency wrapped around your neck? Yeah, it's never a good sign, is it, when you when a company has a, a cryptocurrency or a project or whatever? Yeah, it, it kind of seems to diminish your your stature a bit. Now, you know, when you acquire them, you can just be like, yeah, we're not doing that now or whatever. But it just seemed like this odd mix for Keybase, which is this kind of bunch of hackers doing their hacker thing and having a cryptocurrency. And then Zoom, it's like the suit and tie type people. I don't know. I, I think Keybase is a lot more relevant than you're giving them credit for here, Alan. I mean, well, yes, uh, it's definitely useful. I just I'm not entirely sure I see how it fits with Zoom uh, or the the messaging Zoom had around it was like, we just needed the encryption expertise. Well, they were running a successful, very multi-platform messaging app with crypto baked in. So, I mean, it's a pretty short step from there to, you know, video and not just text messaging. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as far as the development, we don't really know what was going on with that. Um, from what I understand, the Keybase folks uh, did development for hire, like, you know, under contract when they were just Keybase already. Mm. Uh, we don't really know what work they did or didn't contribute, you know, under what guise while the other negotiations were going on. But even if it's a case of the majority of the work was already done, I think there's definitely some value in having a team that you feel confident about that's like on hand for maintenance and, you know, as things happen with it rather than just flailing every time something changes in the world of crypto, which <laughs> happens pretty regularly. <laughs> and and for sure, Zoom really needed the 
the message around it. So picking up a team of people that are already respected for their crypto knowledge really, I think, would help Zoom in this case. It was it probably was the right decision, although the, the cryptocurrency is the part that diminished Keybase a little bit for me because, uh, you know, I had the app and I used it for secure messaging and then it started spamming me about a cryptocurrency. And I'm like, I think I'm kind of done with this platform. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's the one that most of the operating system, uh, open source operating systems people use for talking about uh, embargoed security stuff. So like, you know, the next Heartbleed or the next Meltdown or whatever, uh, when the OSs are coordinating so that all of the security updates for that come out at once, they use Keybase because they need something that other people won't be able to read the messages. And like you said, Keybase is this nice multi-platform. It kind of fits the model. And unlike most other encrypted messaging things, it also cares about proving that not just that the message was secret between me and you, but that you are actually the Jim Salser I mean to be talking to, which is a thing a lot of other, you know, like Telegram encryption doesn't really help you with. Right. And that's why, you know, I like Threema or Keybase for that kind of thing, because you're actually you know, having some verification of the identity of the other person, whether that's with three months scanning QR codes of each other or whatever, or Keybase, it's like, yes, this is, they control that Twitter account and that GitHub account. That's definitely the person I mean to be talking to, which obviously makes uh, a lot more sense in a case where, especially nowadays, it's not like I'm going to go to a conference and see the people in person and, and be able to do a key signing party. All right, well, let's move on. The big tech story at least in my world, over the last couple of weeks, has been Joe Rogan selling his podcast, or at least the the rights to his podcast, to Spotify for a reported $100 million. Now, I knew it was a big, popular podcast, but that is just ridiculous money. And it made me think, if it's exclusively on Spotify, which it will be by the time we get to next year, is it still a podcast? Like, If it's not got an RSS feed, isn't it just an audio show that's available on Spotify, or am I just old-fashioned? So Spotify doesn't have something like RSS? No, you need to have the client or go to their huh. website and use their web app or whatever. It's, it's, that's the whole point of him moving there, is to drive people onto the platform. You might be right that it's not really a podcast anymore at that point, but at the same time, it's like, well, yeah, I'll take $100 million to do a thing over here instead of over there. Although, you know, maybe if you... Uh, Compare it to some of the people that moved platforms from Twitch to, say, uh, was it the Microsoft gaming thing that's managed to only have 3% market share and not grow yeah. compared to Facebook gaming and, and Twitch and uh, what's the other one that's big? Is it Mixler? Yeah, I think Mixer or whatever basically is flatlined. Right. So the bunch of people that took piles of money to move their platform from Twitch to that, you know, got the big payday, but... In the end, if, if the payday was big enough, it's still worth it. But, you know, if they can't grow an audience because the platform is is full of cobwebs, then was it worth it? If you're Joe Rogan, it really doesn't matter to you. You could just start another podcast or whatever. It, it can also depend on the terms of the contract, too. Um, yeah. This was it, uh, this is an old MSNBC guy, uh, Keith Oberman or whatever, who eventually got fired or whatever, but his contract said he couldn't do another show for like three years after getting fired or whatever. Yeah, I think that's pretty standard, yeah. But, you know, $100 million is enough money to convince me to move my platform to anything, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll uh, we'll sell out to you, Spotify. Just, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll split the $100 million between us, what do you think? <laughs> Everything's for sale. I don't know if he had other motivations for it. Like, I know having some control or at least some sway on the platform you're on uh, can give you advantages. Like, you know, 
if you're a small fry on YouTube, they kind of push you around a lot and you don't really have any recourse. And even if you're one of the bigger people, like I've seen a, a lot of the, the bigger creators on YouTube are trying to start their own platform in addition to YouTube because getting pushed around all the time by YouTube and not having anything you can do about it can be a problem. So, you know, having some control over your platform can be uh, very attractive to a creator. But is the platform going to be able to support your content as, as well as, you know, you supporting the platform? If this is truly going to be a case of you can't get access to, you know, his show without loading Spotify specifically, having a Spotify subscription, et cetera, it's, I mean, with a hundred million in his pocket, I don't guess it really matters, but it, I can't see how that's not going to cost him a lot of subscribers because yeah, Spotify is popular, but you know, there's tons of people that, you know, they do iTunes, not Spotify or, uh, Three or four other services that I can't remember because I don't care. <laughs> Spotify is not like, you know, the YouTube of distributed audio or anything. Yeah, but they want to be, right? And the thing is, it's not that you have to pay. You can either pay or listen to ads, is my understanding. So you will still be able to get a show for free next year. But it means you'll have to listen to Spotify's ads instead of skipping the 10 minutes at the beginning of the show where he does his own ad reads. But... Spotify wants to become the de facto platform for all of audio, whether it's music or podcasts or even video now, because his video version that is now on YouTube won't be anymore. There's talk that there might be some clips like there are now, but the whole show, you'll have to have Spotify to watch the video. Good luck. I, I mean, I do not see them taking down freaking iTunes. I mean, they can fight with like Pocket Cast or whatever all they want, but the legions of people out there with glowing fruit, everything are not going to suddenly just be like, oh yeah, let's use, you know, this third party service because it's technically superior to what I have. That's not what they do. <laughs> but it kind of gets to this thing where we're getting into this fragmented ecosystem of walled gardens, you know, whether it's Facebook being like, hey, we'll give you internet for free, but you can only use Facebook on it. Yeah, It's like, oh, you know, we, we finally, we got the idea of cable cutters and we got rid of the, the cable company uh, and we can watch our stuff streaming on the internet except for now if you like four tv shows each one is going to be on a different streaming platform that wants a separate subscription and it's like that's what i purposely switched away from the cable company to avoid having to pay separately for each individual channel yeah and it comes back to what i said at the beginning of this if it's not an open rss feed that i can plug into whatever application i want whether that's on the desktop or android or ios multiple apps then it's not a podcast i don't think it's it's an exclusive spotify show like you could just call it a spotify show at that point which for 100 million dollars you can't knock the fella for doing it but just that walled garden is not going to be good for anyone because someone's going to try and compete with patreon well you've already got companies trying to do it and just not doing as well and spotify have got a, quite a stranglehold on the streaming music platform space but it, it just seems like this is bad for podcasting in general and audio shows whatever you want to call what we're doing right now it just it seems like it's bad news for us yeah it does it seems like a bunch of the other people have this kind of right idea of you kind of need some a platform that's not about capturing stuff and building a walled garden but about just making it easy uh, for people to access the content the problem with that is you don't make enough money to pay for the bandwidth it costs to do all this stuff this is the reason why YouTube was able to can crush all their competitors is because turns out doing video, especially in high def, takes a lot of storage and a lot of bandwidth. And basically ad supported is never going to make a profit at that. 
unless you can integrate into something like Google and make money off more than just the views from it, building a whole data analytics platform and, and selling profiles on the people that are watching this stuff, not just the fact that somebody saw your commercial for dish soap. I think the baller move, if if Spotify really wanted to just, you know, sew up the market, I, I don't think the the move there would so much be, oh, you know, we bought this one really popular show and, you know, now you can only get that one here. I think the better move is what Amazon has been doing, you know, in the cable cutter video space, where now, you know, if you want a CBS subscription or if you want a Stars subscription or several others, you don't necessarily have to go to that individual source. You can log into your Amazon Prime account and just add those on as, you know, like uh, additional subscriptions in the one client, in the one account and manage it all in one in one place. The one I found interesting was the story behind Roku, you know, the little set top box is like that was started by a bunch of Netflix people, but they didn't want to sell it as Netflix because they didn't want people to think it was locking them into just Netflix. So Roku is this specifically agnostic platform as as a device. And, and you know, that's why they've not pulled any of the shit like Spotify and so on. But yeah, I don't know what the right answer is because, you know, obviously we want a free and open internet and uh, and all this stuff to be easy. But, you know, at the end, somebody does have to pay for the bandwidth for uh, all that video for, you know, Joe Rogan's podcast. And if Spotify wants to do that, I guess it's okay. But it really sucks to see the internet getting fragmented like this where, you know, it's like, oh, if you want that, you have to go over here. And it's like, I just want my RSS feed where I can grab the stuff that I like from all over and bring it into my thing and consume it how I want. Exactly. Roku incidentally also does the subscription aggregation thing. Um, I mean, you can certainly manage all your subscriptions independently, but most of the things you can get on a Roku box to begin with, you also have the option of like logging on to the Roku site and subscribing through Roku.com. So you've got, you know, central billing and management and all that for all your various feeds. Yeah, I'm gonna, at some point, maybe somebody will basically reinvent the cable company and charge me one flat fee that's less than this <laughs> aggregate of Netflix, Amazon, uh, CBS, HBO, and, and four other ones that are less interesting or whatever, uh, and just let me have everything. I think it's more realistic that it'll just drive people back to uh, piracy. We're already seeing that, apparently. Well, yes, because this is the other problem, is that it's like... Oh, CBS All Access has Star Trek, but you can watch it on Netflix in every country, every other country, except Canada, where you have to get it from Bell. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm not subscribing to uh, to Crave. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on then. Uh, let's do some free consulting. If you want to send your questions for Jim and Alan, probably the best way is by email show at 2.5admins.com. And if you want to support creation of these episodes, then you can support us on Patreon. All the details for that are at 2.5admins.com. So Eduardo, who is a patron, asked, please dive a little deeper into how to move from being an admin who treats their servers like pets to an admin who treats their servers like cattle. So I'm a half admin or 0.1 or whatever who very much treats them like pets. Automation is clearly the answer to this, but there's just so many ways to do that. Ansible, Chef, Puppet, Kubernetes. So how did you two make that move from treating them like uh, pets to treating them like cattle? It's not even about automation so much for me. It's it's more about virtualization or, you know, containers if you want to go that route. 
your servers are inevitably going to be end up being pets when you've got like one server in a bottle that does all the services. And, you know, there's bajillions of configs for separate things that you had to get set up and you're terrified of upgrading it. Uh, the fix for that is servers that only do one thing. So it becomes much less terrifying to upgrade them or replace them or whatever. And, you know, the only way that most of us are going to be able to do that practically is via either containers or virtualization. For me, that means that now the actual servers, the bare metal servers, the only thing they do is host VMs. And, you know, they don't have names like Jupiter or Aphrodite or, you know, Darkwing or whatever. You know, they're prod zero, hot spare zero, or, you know, disaster recovery zero. You know, and if you got more than one of them, then you got an HS1 and HS2, you know, on like that. And, uh, you know, then from there, your VMs are named after what they actually do. You know, DC0 is your domain controller for, uh, you know, Windows Active Directory stuff. And at that point, everything becomes much less personal and it's, it's a lot easier to just view the individual things for what they do and handle them impersonally and professionally and effectively. Yeah, uh, it's like Jim's saying, separating out the roles as separate things, whether that's, you know, a container like a jail or a VM or even a separate box, whatever. And it's mostly about reproducibility as well, right? Like you want that machine to not have anything special about it. It's the mail server. It has these things set up on it and that's it. If I need to replace it, I can just stand up another one and install the mail server software, apply the configuration and it's good to go. There's not a bunch of hand rolled mumbo jumbos. You know, it's not the server I spent the last five years cobbling together with, with duct tape. The base host is nothing but holding these worker containers, whether they're VMs or containers or whatever. And each of those does one thing and that's it. And can be migrated between the physical hosts. That's important. Yes, that's the big thing. It's like, you know, when when we need to do maintenance on the physical host, it's like, all right, I'm going to snapshot these containers. ZFS send them over while they stay online, keep running. And then once that's done, I stop those containers, snapshot again, do the incremental replication. That takes a minute at most. Then I can start those containers up on the new host. The IP addresses move over. Now the host is empty. I can upgrade the OS, restart it, and I'm done. And also, there's often multiple of them, right? You got hot spares and, and like something like carp or something to automatically fail over between them. It means that when one of them is misbehaving, I can just shoot it in the head and, and get a new one. There's nothing in there that's special or sacred or, or that I, I need to preserve. There's no, you know, setup that I did five years ago and I wouldn't remember how to do it. It's, it's mostly about making sure that everything's reproducible. And it's uh, something we kind of talked about in my home lab uh, thing a couple of weeks ago is if you want to learn how to be a system in, you could do it by doing something, you set it up, but when you're done, you want to delete it, throw it away and do it again and prove that you can do it reliably. So as you're doing it, you make documentation. Then you delete it, and you use that documentation to do it again, and find out what was missing in the documentation. And you keep doing that until you can reliably do it from that documentation repeatedly, and then it's ready to go, and now it's, you know, mail server number 17, not the mail server. And so, you know, if you need a number 18, you can just do it. And you have got to just turn your brain off when you're doing that second setup and following your docs, do not patch any holes. No, you follow those things exactly as they're written. And, you know, when something goes wrong, you write that down. Yes. 
And then, you know, when you're done, now you can go through and you can patch up all the docs and try to make them what they ought to be. And now you get to delete it and do it all over again. Again, brain must be completely turned off until you can get through like literally nothing but reading the docs as though it was your first time seeing this entire concept. You're not done. If anything does not work or has multiple possibilities and you have to know the right one, you're not done with the docs yet. Because you got to remember, especially for production stuff, when you get the call at three in the morning to fix this, you want those docs not to assume that your brain is engaged yet or that the person reading the docs is going to be you. You know, someday you're going to want to go on vacation and you're going to want to know that those docs are there so that any person who can type 20 words a minute will be able to follow them and solve the problem or or stand up, you know, a replacement for the thing that's malfunctioning because maybe you want to preserve the broken one. Or the person may very well be you, but it's three years from now. And the things that you thought, oh, well, that's obvious. I don't need to spell that out. Three years ago, when you were in the middle of this thing and have been living it and breathing it for a day, three years later, you're like, what? Ah, oh, I remember there was something. What? No, don't don't have that. So the, the key is uh, you want them to not have any personality, right? That's the main thing when we talk about the difference between pets and cattle is you don't want any of these containers or VMs that are, you know, have one job to have a personality. You want it to, so that you can not have any remorse when you shoot it in the head and build a clone of it. You you don't want the server, you know, you, I have a favorite server out of the group and then, you know, things like that. It's like when it's for production, you really need to have these, you know, cold surgical attitude. It's funny that you described what you shouldn't have as being something you've put together over five years and is held together with duct tape. I mean, that very much describes any server that I am in control of, basically. Well, yeah, it's it's the way that all sysadmining happened for 20 years, but uh, we're in a different era now. Back then, it wasn't possible to have a separate machine for every different task, unless you had a, you know, a infinity budget. Uh, but now with containers and so on, it, it's much easier to do that. And it unlocks all these abilities, like being able to just move a bunch of the load to a different machine to free up capacity or all of the load off the machine to do maintenance or, uh, you know, anything like that. It also makes it a lot more possible to get these kind of docs that we've been talking about correct. Because part of the problem when you've got a server in a bottle that's, you know, it's your production web server and it's your mail server and it's your DNS server. And it's your MySQL server and, you know, this, 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 and this is, you know, when you're trying to make these clean docs that tell you exactly how to set up a service, you're not entirely sure of all the things that were done to that machine before you started with that one particular task. So it may very well be that some things that were absolutely critical to getting that mail server running, you actually took care of that when you set up the web server, you know, before that, but it's not in your docs because it was already there and it already worked. So you you really just can't have that clean, perfect, yes, this works, it's documented the right way experience without separating these things out. Yeah, and that's where the, the container or the the VM concept where you get just the OS, nothing else. Uh, you mean you get that clean slate every time and make sure that you don't have these second order effects from you know something you did separately for one of the other tasks. And so before you even think about automation and orchestration and stuff, you need to nail what you guys have been talking about here first. And then once you're fully on top of that, then you can move on. 
Right. Because, yeah, once you have this document on how to do it, it's easy to turn that into a puppet manifest or an Ansible playbook or whatever. But until you know what all the steps are, you can't really automate it. Yeah. You know, you should also consider sometimes automation is not automation is not always going to be the answer. Um, A lot of the time I very deliberately avoid automation because it's something that I feel like I need to have straight in my head and I need to practice frequently enough. Automation is what you do when there's no longer any question whatsoever in your head about this thing that you're doing because you're doing it a thousand times a day and you need that time back. But if it's something that, you know, you need to do once a week or so, it may very well be in your best interest to keep some of those steps manual so that you keep some of that overall gestalt in your head of how things work rather than just being like, oh, well, that's my Apache container and that's all I know about this. Yeah. Automation is for when it's like, I need 120 of these and I need to check them every 30 minutes and make sure that they haven't deviated from this recipe. That's when automation comes in. But yeah, when you're building it, you definitely want to understand it all and maintain that documentation. So also, you know, once you've built the Ansible playbook or the puppet manifest or whatever, when it changes over time, you need to also go back and update the docs. And every once in a while, you should probably just start fresh from the docs and build a new one and then look at, you know, making sure your automation is still actually doing the right thing. Well, four episodes in and I'm already learning loads. So thank you both. Hopefully that has answered the question. So remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you've got questions for Jim and Alan. But we'd better get out of here then. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude with two L's. We'll be back in two weeks.